Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Um, you're going to hear the episode we recorded just about an hour earlier in just a second. But first, we are going to deal with some breaking news. It came out right after, and I mean right after we finished recording an episode all about Saturday's games. Nebraska has gone ahead and pulled the plug on Scott Frost two games into the season, despite the fact that if they waited about three more weeks, the buyout was going to be reduced by half Bruce. Did you see this coming today, even after that Georgia Southern debacle on Saturday night? Honestly, no. No, I did not, Stu, because of the buyout issue. I thought it was going to happen in early October. I'm not sure in my head. It's like you're not salvaging the season uh, after losing to who they just lost to. You have a you have a you know, in theory, a big, big game with with OU coming in, just in terms of traditional rivalry and everything. Now Mickey Joseph you know, former Nebraska player as well. He was a really good assistant at LSU. He's going to be the interim. But look, I mean, it's no secret. You know, Scott Frost seemed like a home run hire at the time. He proved to be a dreadful hire for Nebraska. You know, from the people I've talked to who've worked there have just said uh, he spent a lot of time listening and have to the wrong people around him that were close to him. And it really came at the expense of a lot of his coaching staff. Um, they felt like there was too many really impulsive in-game decisions that often blew up in their faces, especially his. So Trev Alberts is making this move now, uh, to make a, you know, to make a move this early, you're obviously ripping the bandaid off. Um, does that mean he's going to get a bigger head start on potential candidates? You know, we don't expect this to be as active a year in the coaching carousel as it was certainly last year, but you never know because even in the years when we don't expect it, it sometimes heats up and that could certainly be the case this year. I look at it more as a mercy killing um, and maybe because Oklahoma is coming to town and your show is coming to town and they're going to be, you know, in the national spotlight this week, not Trev Alberts, not wanting Scott Frost job security. Is he, when is he going to be fired to be the storyline? I don't know. Um, but clearly, Georgia Southern, I mean, I already thought he was, you know, you remember we talked about percentages, and I already had it down even after the Northwestern game to 1% chance he gets can save his job. Uh, but at Georgia Southern, uh, they gave up over 600 yards of offense to to team. And by the way, the, the circle of life here, USC fired Clay Helton after week two of last season. On week two of this season, Clay Helton led Georgia Southern into Nebraska, beats Nebraska, and now that got Scott Frost fired. Um, you said it earlier. Is that the, the circle of life or the circle could, of death? I don't know. That's <laughs> true. You can't draw up on paper a more ideal pairing than at the time than Scott Frost, the, the former national championship quarterback, coming off an undefeated season at UCF coming in to uh to save the day and it wasn't the crazy thing is it wasn't like oh we thought he'd he'd win the national championship but he just went seven and five every year no it was an utter utter debacle it got worse not better three and nine last year one and two to start this year um it always it was always some sort of soap opera he threw his dc under the bus after last night's game so you know this was going to happen at some point i don't know if you know, he apparently thought it was worth $7.5 million. Just go ahead and get it over with now. So you talked about getting a jump start, you know, and talking to the USC people last year, they didn't feel like firing Clay Helton that early gave them some sort of huge advantage in the coaching search. Most of that work got done at the end anyway. I mean, they were maybe more prepared for when it came time to actually pull the trigger, but you know, you could have fired him six weeks from now and you'd still be ahead of the game. So Okay, I mean, were, obvious honestly, question. 
I mean, they were in USC's case, they were every bit as I'm not sure they could have been more dysfunctional if Clay Hilton had stayed on than the way it went on, you know, the way it unfolded anyway. I mean, I saw that team late in the year. You mean so the, the rest of the season? Yeah. The rest of the season, it was a complete disaster. Like, I don't know if it could have been any worse, except for, you know, it wasn't like the fans were flocking to it. It didn't, you know, help in any other regard. But, you know, that's for, you know, the leadership to just, to you know, and look, in the upshot, if you're a Nebraska fan, you're hoping they're not going to get Lincoln Riley, but you're hoping that hire works out as well as that one did. Um, I'm going to, so by the time you guys read, or by the time you guys hear this podcast, I think my story on who we expect to be some of the candidates for, for this job should be up on the athletic. I'm going to bounce a couple of names off of you, Stu, um, high on the list, Lance Leipold, who is the head coach at Kansas, uh, his buyout, I think at the time when Nebraska would like to make this higher will be around $5 million. Um, he was, did wonders at a D three program, did a really good job at Buffalo. And now he's doing a very, very good job at Kansas. Give me your thoughts on him for this. Well, I I love that. We're talking about it. All it took was one big 12 road win and suddenly he's a candidate for Nebraska. Um, I think he's a great coach. In fact, he's the reason why I think Kansas, if he doesn't leave, uh, could finally get back to being respectable here pretty soon why why Lance Leipold and not Chris Kleiman out of the two Kansas coaches? You know, I think in the case of of both those guys were really successful at lower divisions. Chris Kleiman's done really, really well there. Um, Lance Leipold, you know, spent, spent a bunch of time there. He was a Nebraska assistant. He has ties to the program. He has ties in that area, certainly. I don't, I think both guys would be, would be good fits. I think, look, Kansas State was probably in a lot better shape than certainly Kansas was when Lance Leipold took it over. I'm not saying that I think he's the much better coach. Both of those guys are on my list. If it was up to you, I'm going to give you I'm going to give you four names here. Four. There'll be a wild yep. card in here. Lance Leipold, Chris Kleiman, Bronco Mendenhall, Matt Campbell. Rank them for this job. I thought you might throw Bronco Mendenhall in there. And I think Bronco Mendenhall is a great coach, but I don't know. I would be leery. He, 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 you know, got burnt out basically and let, and retired from Virginia. And now he's going to come back into it at a much, much more pressure quicker kind of job. Like that doesn't seem likely to me. I think you have three really good choices there in life. Will Kleiman and Matt Campbell. I think Matt Campbell would be number one on my list. Um, but I also feel like, we just keep talking about Matt Campbell and he keeps going seven and five. I mean, he did have a big side. He's at Iowa state. He's at Iowa state. Yeah. I know this because in part, because of what happened over the summer with realignment with the big tens, new TV deal, you know, this had been discussed a year ago. There would have been talk of like, why would Matt Campbell leave Iowa state for Nebraska? Is that really a better job? And now there's no question. I think if you're in the, what's going to be the new big 12 and you get an offer to go to any big 10 school, much less, you know, one of the ones with the bigger stadiums and more tradition, et cetera, you've got to take that job. You've got to be in the big 10 going forward if you can be. And I'm of the belief that you can still win in Nebraska, maybe not national titles, but, and I've said this a million times, why can't Nebraska in 2022 be what Wisconsin has been? Certainly what Iowa has been like, there's no, those programs have no big advantage over Nebraska. Now, can Nebraska be Ohio State? I don't know if that's realistic these days uh, with the recruiting challenges that they face. But I think you can win 10 games a year uh, with the right coach. And what's interesting about the guys you were mentioning is they are just polar opposite. I mean, Scott Frost came to town with all that bravado. He's going to run the Oregon offense, and he's going to turn Nebraska into this really flashy uh, program. And I think any of those three guys would come in and obviously be much more blue collar. We're going to have a good culture. We're going to develop two stars. And that frankly fits Nebraska better to me than um, than if they were to go out and try to make a big, big splashy uh, offensive guru hire. 
I mean, in a lot of ways, I remember going to, to Lincoln when Scott Frost had gotten there for a big story for, I think it was SI, and he was, everything you said right out of the gate was when he said, "What you know, we should be what Wisconsin and Iowa are. We're not expecting to have a top three recruiting class, but we should have a top, you know, 25, top, top, you know, whatever. And everything he said made sense. He wasn't able to do it. He was not able to do it. Um the, so here we the more I think about it, by the way, I'm going to change my answer to Lance Leipold with the Nebraska connection, with having won everywhere he's been. I think the reason I hesitate earlier, honestly, is I would feel so bad for Kansas if that happens. I feel like after all these years in the wilderness, they finally got their guy. And if he ends up leaving before before he can even really get it going there, um, would be it would be a big setback for the Jayhawks. But I, I think he would win in Nebraska. I think he would too. Then again, I thought Scott Frost would win in Nebraska. But look, I was very confident that he was the guy Kansas should hire. Um, and I like it so far. So we'll see. Jayhawk fans are sorry to do this to you, but he's, yeah. I think he's really going to be in the mix. Um, real quick, this is a, just a, a um, mind-blowing nugget from Amy Juice, the columnist of the Lincoln Journal Star. As interim, Mickey Joseph is the first black head coach in Nebraska history not just football, any sport. That is insane. It is. Mickey J is a, is a, is a good guy with a lot of charisma who a lot, of, he had a big part in the 2019 LSU national title season. Um, the players are had a ton of respect for him. And I think he would, up, you know, I think he was going to upgrade their roster. Um, so we'll see good luck to him. Cause it's going to be hard to, you know, Hard to, to pick up all the pieces now. It's like a short week, really, essentially, from this news happening. So, but we'll see. All right. Well, it was a very, very eventful Saturday. So what do you say? Back to our regularly scheduled program. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined by my colleague from The Athletic, Stuart Mandel. We are taping this the morning after we were both in Austin for what turned out to be a surprising and very entertaining matchup between Texas and Alabama. You and I both thought they were gonna it was gonna be a blowout. It was far from it. And it was a it was a wild scene. We're gonna get to all the stuff from a really wild and fun Saturday. Uh, you are still in Austin. I flew home last night. So let me let me start with this, Stu. We both expected a blowout. When you saw, um, I don't know, it was an 80, 80-yard touchdown run at Alabama, all of a sudden it was like at the end of the first quarter, you're thinking uh, this is probably would have been the best scenario up till that run that you could have hoped for if you're Texas. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, this is it. Now it's going to be a blowout. And it <laughs> wasn't. Well, it was one of those games where you, you keep expecting, and certainly this is always the case when I cover an Alabama game, you expect them, all right, they're, they've, they're done messing around and they're going to pull away now. But there were a couple things that were very un-Alabama about this game. One, the penalties. I just It was so bizarre to watch. Nick there were 15 penalties accepted. There were more called, and there was a bunch more that should have been called. Um, well, in key detail, it was 15 penalties in the first three quarters. Yeah. They, they managed to go through the fourth quarter unscathed. And it wasn't just, first of all, crowd noise was phenomenal. You know, you and I have been to many games there over the years. They really, um, the atmosphere is much more <laughs> SEC-like, if you will, than it used to be. And so they had a lot of false starts, um, delay a game, I, I believe. But the really uncharacteristic part was all of these defensive late hits and um, you know, offsides, including Willie Anderson had a couple of these. So the more they kept doing that, the more they kept gifting Texas opportunities. And then also Quinn Ewers, before he got hurt, connected on several deep balls. Uh, so, you know, they, I think at some point pretty early on, I realized they're going to hang around a lot longer than I thought. Certainly did not expect it to come down to a last second field goal. Yeah, I thought a couple of things. You know, the penalties were were eye opening. You were just—I was sitting there. I was on the sideline with David Pollock, as it turned out. We were just kind of talking throughout the first half. It was just kind of a lot of head scratching stuff. Even things where you're like, I knew going into the game, having talked to some of the Texas assistants, 
They thought Kool-Aid McKinnistry was probably the quickest defensive back that Alabama had, but they thought they that they wondered how he'd hold up against physicality. And you could tell they targeted him. Now there was a play where um, you know, their their young tight end, JT Sanders, basically has him in the corner and there's a lot of hand fighting and there was no penalty called. And I think a lot of people thought that was gonna get whistled. There was a bunch of other stuff that did. To me, the biggest play of the game though was the bizarre Bryce Young looks it takes a safety basically he's not down the referees at one point said he was and there was a targeting you know announcement and then as it turned out Mike Pereira on our broadcast pointed this out you can't review intentional grounding um and so there was no safety and it was still 10 to 10 and instead of Texas getting the ball back at that point so I thought there was that. I'm curious. Did Mike, did Mike, so I didn't hear that. Did Mike say they got the call right? He said, because it's my understanding that at the end of the day, they actually did get it right after all that. Well, if you can't, it's the question though, is the, that you can't, like you can't uh, review intentional grounding. You can't review intentional grounding, but from what I understand, because it was tipped that then no intentional grounding, unless I'm, I'm, unless I heard the wrong interpretation of that. Now they administered it. Steve Sarkeesian afterward described it as just being very weird. And it was because there was no signal of a safety. There was no signal of incomplete pass. It was just targeting and which you watch the replay. You're like, how would they even think to call targeting? There was nothing remotely close to targeting. So once they took that off the board, there was nothing left to say, but incomplete pass. But he's basically flinging the ball with his, with his like, you know, back to the, uh, back to the field, you know, in yeah, the it, position it, it, he was in. It sure seemed like intentional grounding, but again, I believe because an Alabama player, I mean, a Texas player tipped it. Uh, but you could say at that was. point, if somebody is slinging a quarterback in, the, which was basically happening and they just fling the ball and it hits somebody, then all of a sudden it's, it's that right. Um, the other thing they, but missed, you're right. That was a huge moment. That was a huge moment. The other thing that they missed was Texas is in the red zone. I think they're inside the 10. And there is an obvious face mask penalty. It should be first and goal at the three. They missed the call, you know, and this was in the, this was in the fourth quarter, I believe early in the fourth quarter um, or maybe midway through the fourth quarter. And if you are a Texas fan, you had opportunities because they had a badly missed field goal at the end of the first half. But, you know, given that you had not just Hudson card playing, but Hudson card, like the thing he does best, he was hobbled. So, uh, you know, like, and, um, Given all that, I just thought it, it was interesting because the things that kind of showed up a lot last year, the offensive line for Alabama was pretty underwhelming. You know, we'll give credit to Pete Kwiatkowski with maybe a big assist to Gary Patterson. We don't know how much of a big assist, but, I, you know, from being around the Texas coaches uh, this week, I think they've really appreciated his perspective on things that he's been there, but also you know, you don't see, you know, we've gotten so spoiled and certainly Alabama has of having such special playmakers at receiver. And right now they don't have it. They just, you know, they didn't have anybody to scare you. And if you, you know, talking to the Utah state staff last week, they did not feel like there was anybody that scared them that they were going to win outside. And, and that's an interesting kind of dynamic for them because Bryce Young's playmaking is, is terrific as pocket presence and his ability to see the field. You know, it was really, really good. By the way, you know, again, I don't want to sound like I'm a huge Texas fan here, but the Bryce Young makes a great play to avoid corner pressure and scrambles for a first down. When you watch that play back, there is a blatant hold uh, by one of the Alabama offensive line where he's just kind of – now, maybe that player so wouldn't have been – So, basically, you're saying that the refs won the game for Alabama. Is what it sounds no, like. I don't want to say that, but I was just like, man, I – I don't recall a game where like the hold is a, is a blatant one on that. If you go back and watch the play now, maybe you could say, all right, you can call holding on almost every play. This was really obvious. The face mask was really obvious. Um, so again, you know, credit to Alabama. They won with certainly out there without their a game, but man, if you're a Texas fan, you were really, your team was really, really close. And I think they're probably going to be, kind of kicking themselves after they watch that no matter how many times they watch that film yeah bryce young 
they were able to really pressure him and new, I mean, I believe going to the fourth quarter, Alabama had more penalty yards than passing yards. Uh, but in the fourth quarter and on those, particularly the two, the touchdown drive, which ended with him again, doing one of his Houdini escape backs to throw the touchdown. And then obviously the, the winning field goal drive, he was Bryce Young. And, but you're right. I mean, as you look forward now, I remember getting a mailbag question in the summer, you know, as, as I think I had said on a couple occasions that, it's Alabama and everyone else or something in that effect. Like, aren't you at all concerned about the offensive line and receivers? And it turns out I should have been. Um, we'll see if the offensive line thing is correctable. But but I do find it interesting when you go back, I mean, how many years back now has Alabama always had at least one and sometimes more first-round receivers, including Jamison Williams last year? And you just don't see that. Now, Um you know, they thought Jermaine Burton, the Georgia transfer, would be a big one. He was a non-factor. Corey Brooks, who came on strong as a freshman at the end of last year, was I don't I never I don't remember ever hearing his name until the touchdown drive when he had two uh, big catches. So they got to find somebody because uh, yesterday Jameer Gibbs was their leading receiver. That's not realistic. Um, in terms of the Texas side, yeah, you're right. A lot of missed opportunities, a lot of kicking themselves, but as they walked off the field. The fans were cheering them. Uh, I was in the Texas post game, and Sark and pretty much every player. Like there was nobody. The vibe was not of any of we just suffered a crushing loss. It was a lot of we showed we can compete with the number one team in the country. You know, um, Rashawn Johnson, their running back, said something to the effect of, "You know, that same game last year would have been over in the third quarter." We had, we're just much we're much more resilient now. Um, it was, you know, you hate to put it this way, but it was a big moral victory for Texas. Now they've had some moral victories over the years, right? The the Texas is back game, uh, or not moral victories, but moments where you're like, oh, this this they finally might finally have it, and then it, they never follow it up. So I'm interested to see how does the rest of the season go for Texas in the, in 2019, I was here week two for the LSU game where Sam Ellinger and Joe Burrow, you know, duped it out for 60 minutes and with the eventual national champion. And then I think they went like eight and five. Is this going to be that kind of season or is, was yesterday a sign that that Texas could, could compete for the big 12 title. If they play like that every week, they certainly could. A couple of things. So talking to some of the staff at UT, you know, they were playing four underclassmen, two true freshmen on the O-line and four really young offensive linemen, obviously against, you know, Will Anderson and Dallas Turner in a really good front. But uh, the coaches there told me, you know, like they're young, but they will not be shook. They really believe that in their guys. And I, you know, I'd mentioned that to some of the other people, you know, around this, you know, I knew around the stadium, either they were, you know, the former players that I work with or whatnot. And they're like, yeah, well, just wait. And actually, they didn't look like they were at all, right? And, yeah. um, you know, Kelvin Banks, they they think is someday going to be like a first-round pick, you know, massive left tackle who's very athletic. You know, the other true freshman, as crazy as it is, and he was a, a big recruit too, but he was playing in a wing T offense last year, right? And so that's a big jump. And those guys acquitted themselves very, very well. What I think will be really interesting is from what you just said about uh, you know, how are they followed? They have two really interesting games coming up next. UTSA, who's a really, really good group of five. Jeff Trailer spends a lot of time around UT. Um, they have a really good quarterback in Frank Harris. And then at Texas Tech, who, you know, they just beat Houston. You know, like, they're both formidable teams. No one's going to, like, they're teams that if, honestly, if you lose to them, people are going to, you know, the people who chirp will probably make a big deal about like that was a fluke against Alabama. That was more Alabama being undisciplined. But again, it's still a really young team. And so wouldn't it surprise me if they have their hands full? Also, just one other thing. I'm curious as to how much of the like, do you did you empty the tank yesterday against a really physical team? I mean, it's a hot day, but it's always hot, you know, at that time of year down there. But you know, how do you bounce back from that? Did you get up really for Nick Saban and Alabama's team for that stage? And how do you get back up for UTSA, who's good, but most people don't 
you know, equate UTSA with like a big, big game. Yeah, there's a there's a definite uh, possibility of a huge letdown there because this was this was clearly a game that Texas had circled for a long time. When does the number one team in the country? How often does the number one team in the country come into Austin? Like I said, they broke their attendance record by a not close. I mean, usually, when a school announces the, we set a new attendance record, it's by like thirty-seven, right? They they they've counted a few more janitors. No, I think it was like two thousand more. So it was a you know it was a a, a special day in Austin, and now you got to go on with the rest of the season. But I do think this will turn out to be as long as they don't just totally tank the rest of the season. This will turn out to be a moment where Stark won won everybody over. By the way, Quinn Ewers, we haven't even mentioned, you know, unfortunately got injured pretty early, but before that looked really good. Uh, played very well. Several yeah. Default. yeah. So, you know, and I, and I'll be honest, I didn't, that's the thing I did not see coming because I watched the Louisiana Mon- Monroe game back and he threw a terrible interception on the first series. And then he spent most of the rest of the game just throwing checkdowns. So, I mean, I was like, good Lord, this is not going to be pretty when he was up against the Alabama defense. And, you know, he came out, and, and credit to Sark, as always, with his – he's a great play caller. He obviously came into that with some some wrinkles ready. So so if you're a Texas he fan – He also had, uh, you know, uh, uh, and I, I agree with you, he also had, though, a surprisingly, you know, clean pocket a bunch of times. And that I did not expect, right? I mean, the there was a – even there was a deep shot he hit that was almost caught. And I'm trying to remember, it might have been – it might have been worthy in the back of the end zone, but he just couldn't corral it before he got yeah. out, went out of bounds. But like that was like he had time on a bunch of plays, which was like I didn't think he would have any time like that. Um, let me ask you this: so about a month ago on this very podcast, we talked about Texas, and you said they were going to be four and eight. Um, you also had good predictions in there, or at least what are shaping up as good predictions in the Big Twelve. So I don't want to feel like you're slamming you. But now that you've seen what you saw. I will give you the chance to have a have a gimme. Give me the record. Because I think you would probably have them at one on one one and one either way. You knew they would be Louisiana Moreau. Right, right, right. Lose, so. I don't think they're gonna go four and eight, but I also don't think they're gonna go ten and two. I mean gonna, you wanna flip it to eight and four? I'll flip it to seven and five. And here's what I'll say. Okay, so they look better than expected. Oklahoma has dominated. Oklahoma was not dominating in the first half against uh, Kansas State, but then they ran away with it. The rest, of, there's nobody. If you're saying, okay, these team, this team's going to be better than I thought, who in the Big 12 is going to be worse than I thought? Texas Tech had a big win, and I, w- and I had very low expectations for them. Uh, Oklahoma State's playing really well. Baylor lost a close one to BYU. I don't, I don't think that's a. What did you, what did you think of West Baylor. Virginia going into the year? You know, I think I had them rising up a little bit, but I also had Kansas rising up. I, I, you know, kudos to Lance Leipold. I think that program has finally finally found their guy. That was a big road win. Uh, it probably is not a good sign for West Virginia here, right? So is it fair to say, like, the school I remember you think, and it's too hard to tell on on right now yet, but, like, yeah, I think you also had TCU 4-8 and eight or 5-7. and seven. They're 2-0. and oh. I mean, they won at CU. We think CU's Look, bad. somebody's got to go 4-8. and eight. I mean, <laughs> they're not all going to go 8-4. and four. So it, I think that'll be a very interesting race to watch the rest of the season. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, I'm going to segue for you here. Texas, are, we Texas in the state, are we staying in the state of Texas? Yes, we are. If you're a Texas fan today, you're feeling really good, even though you lost. If you're a Texas A&M fan, you also lost a close game, but you lost a close game to Appalachian State. Your offense was non-existent. Crazy stat of the day. Uh, Appalachian State ran 80 plays. 
Texas A&M ran 38 plays. How do you run only 38 plays in a game? So A&M fans have been very bought in on Jimbo, obviously. They've been very patient with Jimbo. They certainly came into this year with expectations of being a national title contender. How do you, you know, what do you take from that? How do you, I don't think this is a simple, well, they just had a bad day. This is now year two of, you know, ever since Kellen Mond left, they haven't gotten good quarterback play. And Haynes King won the job over Max Johnson, who we saw do good things at LSU. So expectations were high and he did nothing uh, against Appalachian State. It's really interesting because there's a bunch of, you know, they didn't have 200 yards of offense. They only had nine first downs and really only one offensive touchdown. By the way, how many points did App State give up the week before to North Carolina? So here's, here's what I'm wondering about. And Jimbo Fisher for a long time had a reputation of being great with quarterbacks. Um, It's been a long time since he's had a really good one or even close to a really good one. Right. And so he inherited Kellen Mond. Kellen Mond was solid. Um, you know, you look at it though, and I, I tweeted this stat out and it kind of blew my mind. I like double checked it four times. They have lost the last three games against FBS opponents. They've lost all three of them to Ole Miss, who was, who was good, but not great to LSU, which was in the, basically the last game for Ed Ogeron against that Max Johnson. And they lost that. And then they just lost this one, um, two of these. Uh, Well, this one's a lot different than those other two, um, and I don't want look. Appalachian State is a good program, and I want to before we continue to to. No, to I agree. I mean, they were, they were physically the the they were physically the tougher team, and they were the yeah. better coach. They've team, got but, great running backs. They've they're they're you know obviously they have a long history of this. This isn't as shocking as as when they beat Michigan as an FCS team, but this was a huge win for them. And in fact, they stole game day away from. A&M game day was supposed to be going to A&M for the Miami game. Now they're going to Boone for the Troy Appalachian state game. Yeah. I think it's a real um, gut punch moment for Jimbo. I mean, it's, there's no more excuses. It's year five. You just Jimbo signed the Fisher, greatest recruiting by, class in history. Jimbo Fisher, by the way, now he is at, that was his 50th game coaching. Jimbo Fisher actually has a worse record in his first 50 games than Kevin Sumlin does at A&M. Ouch. Well, Kevin Sumlin had Johnny for a couple of years. This, yeah, there's been no Johnny. There's been no Jameis. You're right. No. I mean, it's not just Jameis. He he. How many first round court? He turned Jamarcus Russell into the number one pick. He turned well. Some uh, of those first round, some of those first round quarterbacks. Jameis Jameis. You know, he's starting now, but it's like Christian Ponder did not have a good NFL career. I like EJ. Oh, no, but I, that's not like, Jimbo's fault. Right? He got them to 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 the first round, and then it, yeah. what happened from there was not in his control. So I, I believe he had his first three starting quarterbacks at Florida State. Once he became the head coach, all became first round picks. But we're not seeing that now. And and not not maybe this isn't for the podcast. Every quarterback, almost every quarterback he's had, Jamarcus, huge bust. Christian Ponder, big bust. Right, Uh, EJ Manuel, big bust. Jameis has been really disappointing because he was like you know drafted so high. Um, Again, you can say it's not his fault. Are these quarterbacks really ready to do anything after they leave? I don't know. I don't know. They should be because, and this is where I was going to get to. He's running a, a, a 2013 pro style offense in 2022. It's a very conservative, uh, you know, very complicated offense for the quarterbacks. And, and it's his offense. I know they, they have an OC in title, but it's his offense. He's the play caller. Yeah. I, doubt he's going to make any like radical changes two weeks into the season but i do think it might be time to consider bringing in a new news perspective on the offense i mean let's take a step back here if you're an a&m fan this is not steve sarkeesian year two he has actually been there a long time now yes i mean how confident are you after what you did like you know i was seeing our friend billy lucci had something about how like how big of a game this miami game is Miami is not a, you know, is not a great team at, at this point. They're not loaded. They, I think they will be in a couple of years, but they are, you know, they're, they're good, but they're just a, I think a borderline top 25, like around somewhere in the twenties team. And winning that game would be, would be a nice win. Losing to them 
I think would be a real, real big gut punch. But like, I'm still trying to figure out here, you know, at this point, if you're an A&M fan and you're going like, that's a game you should not lose, especially the way you've lost it, you know, and you start to go back. Like Colorado was awful last year. They almost lost to Colorado last year. You know? Well, that's the thing. Last year, it was easy to, to blame all that on poor Zach Calzada, who got thrown into the fire and just did not look ready, for, save for that one amazing performance against Alabama. Um, but now we're seeing, you know, at least through two games, we're seeing the same thing with Haynes King. So I don't know if he's going to pull him at some point soon for, for Max Johnson. Obviously, Connor Wegman is a yeah, highly rated so. freshman. But I think you got to start wondering if it's not the player and it's the scheme or the preparation and um, you know, you're right. I mean, it's, he's, he's proven to be an exceptional recruiter. His defenses are great, but that's not really his thing. He's the offensive guy and it's your, his, no, his defenses under, under Mike Elko were really good. Mike Elko is now the head coach at Duke. Yeah, I know. But there's a, they're there. It's too early to say about, you know, the deep. No, I get it. But uh, by the way, just on the, on the, what's in the what's in the in the windshield right now so we know they just lost to app state they have miami which will be an interesting game then after that they put arkansas who i think is very good then at mississippi state who looks like they're pretty good and they have a good quarterback and we know they're gonna they're gonna move the ball and then they got the game against alabama which i'm sure alabama will be primed for that one i mean i think they'll beat miami i do think they'll respond but I think there's a very realistic chance that they're looking at two and four now out of the gate. Well, if they turn around and beat Miami, I don't know that I'm going to be as panicky about them because that is still a decent opponent. And, you know, you never know, like when something like this happens, you know, you may get six weeks down the road and be like, God, Appalachian state's really good. I can understand that a little bit more, or they could go two and four, you know, we had a, a pretty, you know, reminder, a pretty vivid reminder yesterday about the danger of reacting to one result. And that would have been, and that was Florida against Kentucky. We, we spent, we were on this podcast last week talking about whether Anthony Richardson is the next Ben Stone. Anthony Richardson threw two brutal picks, completed Anthony less Richardson, than 50% of his passes. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not it, getting off that bandwagon. It was like his third college start. I think Anthony Richardson, well, like the next, remember it took Vince Young a long time to get to be Vince Young. So I'm not. I wouldn't get off the bandwagon if I were you. If you're on the, bandwagon. I'm not getting off the bandwagon, but it, but that tells you that he could have a bit of a. He and that team could have a bit of a roller coaster season. You're not no sure. It's not like it's not like he's. You know, we saw against Utah is going to be every week. It could be one week he he is Vince Young, and the next week he really struggles. And I think he's kind of carrying that team right now. So hats off to Mark Stoops, by the way, who passed Bear Bryant as the winningest coach in Kentucky history, and. I feel like no matter what he does, we still overlook them. I certainly picked Florida in that I game. Don't, I don't think we overlook them. I think other people tend to look at, oh, it's a basketball school, and they kind of crap right. on them. Like, he's done a really good job building this the right way. And Well, as you recall, I, this summer he made a point of telling everybody that they're a football school. Uh, <laughs> they have definitely had, relative to their sport, they've had more success recently than John Calipari has had in basketball. That was a big win for them. They used to – you remember for years they could not beat Florida. They would lose in the weirdest possible ways. Now they've beaten them two years in a row in three of the last five. So kudos to them. Uh, you know, so I left the stadium yesterday about an hour after the game and sat in endless traffic trying to just, just get out of the parking garage. So you're probably not supposed to do this. This is probably not considered safe driving, but I pulled up the Marshall Notre Dame game on my phone. And at that point, Notre Dame was winning 15 to 12. And you know what happened from there? Marshall didn't just win. They won by two scores. It, you know, Brian Kelly, you know, for all the, the, the crap he takes, had won 42 straight against unranked opponents when he left Notre Dame. Marcus Freeman is now 0-3. He's the first Notre Dame head coach to start 0-3. You know, this, this is life comes at you fast moment, right? He was the the talk of the off season, the great recruiter, the style, all of that. And now you're owing to with the loss to Marshall and kind of, you know, there's a, there's a bit of an identity crisis. Now, what is Notre Dame going to be? 
I think the biggest issue for them right now, Tommy Reese, young offensive coordinator who Andy fans loved it when he spurned Brian Kelly to stay in South Bend. They're really a shaky offense right now. You know, Tyler Buckner, honestly, without Tyler Buckner's wheels and maybe Michael Mayer, this would be even worse because I feel like Tyler Buckner at least gave them something in in the quarterback run threat when they played Ohio State. He threw two picks, and then he got a shoulder injury. Drew Pine came in. He threw a pick late in the game. Um, You know, they just look like their margin for error we talked about. Like, we knew their receiving core was really thin. Um, You know, they lost Kyron Williams, who was a terrific all-around back. They've had guys get injured. They are just – I look, credit to Charles Huff. We've talked about him before. We think he's a rising star in coaching. By the way, he won that game without the best running back uh, in the in the Sun Belt, maybe one of the best running backs in the country, who's, who is not with the team for a little bit, Rasheen Ali. He's a big-time He's a big time back, and they still won. And I think if you're a Notre Dame fan, like, man, I hope they get this figured out, you know, because this is definitely not the kind of game you want to lose. And again, now that he's 0-3, I think it's going to be really challenging for – them to keep everything and recruiting that momentum. You know, this feels a little bit like how a coach takes over and he got really good, you know, he's either a a charismatic guy or has got like some buzz and a lot of recruits buy into the change. But then when the team goes like three and nine or five and seven, all of a sudden some of those recruits start to jump out of the boat. Now I'm not saying that's going to happen here, but you know, I, I think it's definitely going to be harder to maintain this momentum when the product on the field uh, is really struggling, obviously. So you mentioned Tommy Reese. I have been puzzled at the adulation for him among the Notre Dame fan base. I actually remember reaching out to a Notre Dame fan I know after because they, they celebrated that like the Super Bowl when he turned down Brian Kelly to stay. One of the reasons stated or, or talked about at the time of why they promoted Marcus Freeman rather than wait a week and possibly get Luke Fickle was to keep that staff intact. Uh, Tommy, it's not like Notre Dame has been an offensive juggernaut the last few years. I'm just looking here. They were 43rd in the country in yards per play last season. So, but, but Notre Dame fans loved him. Well, I went on the uh, comment section of Pete Sampson's story yesterday from the game. And let's just say, uh, Tommy Reese has lost the fan base. I don't think Marcus Freeman has because it's three games into his tenure and he's got a top five recruiting class. And, you know, maybe maybe yesterday was a little bit of a wake up call of, oh, that's right. We hired a head coach who had, you know, one season as a power five coordinator. But you're not going to give up on him yet. But Tommy Reese has been there for a while and the offense seems to be getting worse, not better. Uh, we have some breaking news here because we were just talking about Texas earlier. I should mention that Anwar Richardson, very plugged in Texas reporter, reports that. Quinn Ewers is expected to be out four to six weeks with two sprains of his clavicle. Uh, earliest Ewers could return is for the Oklahoma game on October 8th. You know, that's not, I guess, not as terrible as it could have been, but not great. Uh, you know, given what we saw early yesterday, he's, I mean, I think that's a big loss for them for, for that long a period of time. Yeah. I mean, that is, yeah. Especially if, if Hudson Card's wheels don't heal up and he's limited too. Um, you know, Malik Murphy, who's got a big arm, who's a young quarterback recruit. I don't think he's healthy. And so, I mean, that's not ideal for, for Steve Sarkeesian or anything to try to get some momentum, especially with, like we said, coming off this. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Back to Marshall. So, you know, the realignment dominoes last year, once they got to the group of five level, were a little hard to keep up with. When I started hearing people say that the Sun Belt had two top 10 wins yesterday, I was like, oh, that's right. Marshall's in the Sun Belt now. Like that, that I, I, I don't necessarily have encyclopedic recall of which conference USC teams went to the Sun Belt, which ones went to the AAC, et cetera. But yeah, that, that was, you know, clearly the biggest day in Sun Belt football history. Uh, two top 10 wins. And then, of course, Georgia Southern, Clay Helton, the Clay Helton Redemption Tour has begun. They take down Scott Frost, Nebraska Cornhuskers. Heck of a day for that conference. It is. Lots of really good coaches in that league, especially guys. I mean, Clayton's a little different story, just that he's not on the way up as much. Although, you know, you talk to people around there and they feel like he's really evolved from his experience at USC. Um, speaking of Nebraska work, my crew is going to Nebraska next week. That'll be an interesting uh, big That'll be an interesting Oklahoma. environment. It will be an interesting environment. Um, they so, were yeah. chanting fire frost yesterday. I mean, let's both agree real quick, right? Yesterday was the end. Like there's no who was chanting who was chanting fire frost. Was that Max Olson sitting next to the press box? No. <laughs> that was the Nebraska student section, I believe. Remember, you were like, what percentage chance do you give him after the Northwestern game? You said one, I said four, or I said 14. What did yeah, I say? You said 15. 15 what do you say yeah. now? Three? I say point point two five percent. All right, uh, you drop from zero to, from one to zero point two five, and I drop from from fifteen to three percent. I mean, it's just what a, I mean. How do you lose to those guys? I mean, nothing against that was a losing Sun Belt team last year. And and you know what's interesting is you know if, if you know the history of Georgia Southern, it's the triple option has always been their identity. And Clay Alton's not a triple option coach. He got um, uh, uh, very experienced and successful. Uh, transfer quarterback from Buffalo, and he threw for 400-something yards. They put up over 600 yards offense on the Huskers. Scott Frost went into his press conference and just threw the D.C. completely under the bus. The Scott Frost era at Nebraska is over. Uh, uh, By the way, uh, and the team they, the, yeah. the team they lost to the week one or week zero in Ireland, didn't that, and that team lost to, turned around and lost to Duke. Yes, Northwestern did lose to Duke. It's actually a tradition of theirs. They've lost three straight now. Duke um that team you can you can never predict that team from week to week so good on the Sun Belt good on those programs they still have Coastal Carolina too so it could I mean the interesting thing is Houston lost Cincinnati has lost um San Diego State has lost Fresno State lost in a dramatic finish against Oregon State last night you know I think the group of five team that goes to the New Year's Six Bowl is not going to be undefeated and why not Appalachian State? That could end up being, uh, or Marshall. That could end up, you know, it's always, we always assume it's going to be an AAC team, but it's the Sunbelt team so far that are picking up these big non-conference wins. Yeah, it's a, it is a really, really good league. I think it's the most underrated league in college football, and we see it this time of year where they kind of flex their muscle. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a cool thing that I feel like a lot of us kind of got more a little aware of in that, the first year of the pandemic, just because we got exposure to, you know, it was like Arkansas State. I forgot who they beat, maybe K State in week one or week zero, whatever the heck. It was yeah, called. that's right. They had that that early Saturday. Jonathan uh, Adams was, a, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And of course, that and was. And I think the year Co- of- Coastal Carolina beat up on KU because I remember Spencer and Brando were at that game. And that was kind of right. A lot of people's kind of maybe eye opening moments on, hey, this Jamie Chadwell is really good. You know, <laughs> Grayson McCall is really good. And so, yeah, interesting. Um, uh, I do want to really good win, by the way, for Jake Dickert. And one thing I was like a shout out Washington State players. We've talked about this a little bit before, but a lot of these guys, Renard Bell hit a big play early. He's a receiver from out here in L.A., tiny receiver who is a leech guy. I'm going to say leech guy. He was like in one of the leeches recruiting class. Feels like he's been there forever. Um, Hit a big catch and run. But those guys a lot of the older players have been through about as much as any program, you know, like, like the Utah guys with a lot of real, real life tragedy, but unlike the Utah guys, they've also had a lot of crazy twists and turns with the leadership of their program. Um, you know, you had Leach there, you had Leach's quick exit, 
You had Nick Rolovich in the wild, whatever it was, 15 months he was there. Jake Dickert took over. Jake Dickert is a not a Wisconsin Badger, but he is a you know Wisconsin guy. had had a bunch of family there, and his team wasn't like a wild air raid win. I mean, they basically held Wisconsin. I don't think had a run longer than 17 yards, and Wisconsin ran tried to run the ball all day long. And you know, a little uncharacteristic of Wisconsin, like what we saw a little bit from Alabama, 11 penalties. You know, missed some field goals, had some turnovers, were sloppy. But hats off to Jake Dickert and the Washington State Cougars because that's a really nice win for them. So for all the talk, of, you know, when you think of Washington State, you think, like you said, air raid, uh, briefly with Rolovich, run and shoot. Um, Jake Dick, I, I looked this up last night. He's coached eight games there now, and they've held their opponent to 21 points or less in six of them. So they've kind of established themselves as a, as a really good defensive team. And by the way, there aren't many of those in the Pac-12 uh, these days. Um, I assume you watched USC Stanford. I did. I did. I got a little misty-eyed on the plane sitting in, sitting on the American Airlines flight. As yeah. I so before, is doing. Oh, my gosh. I, I immediately texted you. So we're going to talk mostly about USC, but if, if people didn't notice this, uh, Stanford secretly installed the Wake Forest slow mesh and broke it out in this game. And if you've listened to this podcast, if you read Bruce's story that he wrote about coaching his son's team until David, you and David Shaw may be the only two football coaches in America who have adapted the, the, the slow mesh. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I texted Dave Clawson right as I saw, I'm like, they're running this. And then, so he responded back. Cause as of like a couple of weeks ago, I had called Clawson, um, after our summer league and I was like, Hey, we won the championship again. And I was telling him about like a little of the, you know, added, you know, little tweaks we've added to our slow mesh, which is nothing like theirs. I mean, like we don't, we barely read it. You know, we have eight year olds running it, but, um, <laughs> and she so was like, well, you're the only, you're the only one who's really running it besides us. You're our, you're our first real convert. And so, my hunch is that this was David Shaw and Stanford kind of doing to him on a much larger scale than what we did, which is just, you watched it and you watch it. Like, how can we kind of tweak this to make it work? I don't know if he, there's a ton of reads that go into what, you know, Warren Ruggiero and, and Clawson do at Wake Forest. I'm guessing they don't know a lot of the rationale behind that. Just because I know from talking to Dave, he has been really buttoned up. He does not want this out. He, you know, he does not want this spreading, like becoming the air raid. That's their thing. They're really good at it. Right. Um, and Stanford was really effective at it because even when you don't, the thing that's really cool about this offense is even if that play doesn't hit, it's like, it's the effect of it makes people really hesitant and slows them down on defense. And so the other stuff works on it because you're planting mental seeds with it all over the place. And, so I do want to talk about USC here, like my uh, my big noon colleagues, um, I almost said Matt Bush, and Reggie, <laughs> Matt Leinert and Reggie Bush, um, you know, were like pronouncing USC back after beating Rice and they did look impressive on offense. But I want to say the USC offense, I think, is back. I feel pretty good in saying oh, that. Oh, with, yes. Yes, it is. You no. Know, so but. You know, they, you know, it's, it's Stanford. Who's not what Stanford was under, certainly under Jim Harbaugh. And it is Rice, who's pretty mediocre. Um, but the defense, as much as they're getting turnovers, Alex Grinch, that's a big thing he harps on, but they're getting gashed on a lot of plays. And, you know, USC, as you all know, because you covered that team a lot, when Liner was there, they had really good players in the defensive line. They had a bunch of linebackers that came after that. And that's not what these guys are at this point. Like they're, 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 they're fun to watch, but I mean, I don't know if you watch that game, Stanford had a bunch of turnover, you know, like, uh, like a bunch of turnovers. If they don't turn oh, yeah. the ball over that game might be a 63, 61 game. Which is, this is exactly what I thought we were going to USC was going to be this year. You know, with the amount of when you bring in Caleb Williams and Jordan Addison and Travis Dye and Mario Williams, they in Lincoln Riley is a, obviously a great offensive coach. Uh, it's not surprising to me that they would score five on their first five series against um, Stanford. But we also know they do not have the talent on defense. 
And so it's not surprising to me that Stanford had a lot of success moving the ball on them. If you, you're right, I mean, they turned it over inside the five early on, a couple of bad picks by Tanner McKee. So I think this is what USC season will be. I mean, it's going to be a lot of, it's going to be hard for teams to keep up with them. Uh, or uh, It's going to be hard for teams to keep that offense down. I just think too much firepower, but you can score on them. There's an interesting next two weeks for USC. Uh, they're playing Fresno State this coming week with Jake Hayner. Fresno State had this amazing uh, wild late night game with Oregon State in which they traded the lead several times and Oregon State won with a move you don't see coaches do very often. They got down to the two-yard line, three seconds left. You can just kick the field goal and go to overtime. Jonathan Smith did not do that. He lined up in the Wildcat and scored the touchdown and won. But Jay Kaner is still really good. So you got that next week. And then you go to Corvallis to play that Oregon State team. And Jonathan Smith's offense, which is very creative, uh, could could score a lot of points on that bad USC defense. Yeah, I... I think it's, I think they're going to be fun to watch. I think there will be some hiccups. I assume that we will see some defenses give them a little more problems. I mean, as you know, Stanford's defense has really struggled for a long time now. So um, very, 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 very interesting, I think. Um, the we other should mention game, that BYU, yeah. Um, I have not been – you know, once you get past like the top five or so, I would say I, I'm not paying very close attention to where our teams are ranked. So not until after the, I thought the Baylor BYU game was going to be a toss up and it was not until afterward. Did I realize that this was considered a big upset because it was number 23 BYU taking down number nine Baylor. Um, you know, those teams played a good game last year. And at this point, I mean, Kalani Sataki's program, you know, they, they, in the 2019 season, they got up to a two and four start. And ever since then, they are 28 and six. They went six and one against power five teams last year. The one loss was to Baylor. They beat Baylor this time. Uh, I just I just have a lot of respect for that that program. Um, they were down their top two receivers in this game. And they had a freshman uh, step up and and they got it done. I mean, it was down to the wire, uh, kind of an ugly game at times. But, you know, I think that sets BYU up well, and I'm not going to throw in the towel on Baylor just yet. That was, again, yeah. you know, they could have easily won that game. Kalani has done a really good job. Aaron Roderick, the, the OC there, I think, you know, I mean, they it was a, it was fun to see some of the stuff they did. I thought they did a really good job um, bottling up bottling up Baylor's offense. Obviously, they know, they know Jeff Grimes really well because he had been the OC at BYU. Um, BYU is a program that just I think sometimes it's like it's rare for them to get the marquee TV matchup even that one last night which was a really good matchup I feel like I'm not sure because of the time it was on or I just don't know if it just didn't get the you know it felt like an after dark game as much as anything it was an after dark game it was in that that time slot it included by the way a very uh bizarre segment did were you watching when with um Mark Jones and RG3 were eating the cougar tail <laughs> I did not. I did see RG3 drop a Paw Paw Patrol reference, but I did not see the cougar tail. So they show, first they showed the students who are passing around. I thought at first it was a baguette, you know, like a long baguette that comes in a a white. But no, it's some sort of very big donut. And they Mm -hmm. would take a bite and then pass it to the next person who would take a bite and then pass it to the next person, which seems very, um, the germaphobe in me would not have wanted to participate in that but yeah that they spent about five minutes i would say talking eating it in the box talking about uh how now they're gonna have diabetes from all the sugar uh it's kind of that segment kind of took on a life of its own but i think a lot of people probably watched it i don't think many people saw the uh oregon state game that was on cbs sportsnet um or the arizona mississippi state game that started at 11 p.m eastern what do you say we do some shout outs uh, in addition to my one for Jake Dicker in Washington State, you got one. Does that count as a shout out? We can do another. Go ahead. Um, I want to give. Uh, I want to. Well, this is a guy you've you've. Um, this this guy's not exactly a secret, but Hendon Hooker was uh, phenomenal against uh, Pitt. Uh, he he looked like he in overtime it looked like he'd run in for a long touchdown. And they, they wave it off. 
So then he just throws a 28 yard touchdown to win the game. Um, you know, we talked about Anthony Richardson at length. I don't think Hedman Hooker gets nearly enough uh, acclaim as being one of the better quarterbacks in the country. I think that's fair to say. I feel like he is too early to throw the Heisman word out there as a contender. But I feel like if he can have a big performance against when they do get a top 10 opponent, um, I think it's a chance to showcase him in that offense. They're, they have good skill talent. Cedric Tillman's, a, I mean, I don't want to say he's a, a, a well-kept secret because he's in the SEC and people in that league know how good he is. But, you know, we're talking a lot about whoever's putting up huge numbers at Ohio State. And, you know, we talk about Jordan Addison. And, you know, he's like, these guys are close, I feel like. I don't know if they're good enough on defense to be a top 10 team, but they're definitely a dangerous team because they're really good on offense. That was a big win for them. Unfortunately, speaking of quarterback injuries, Keaton Slovis got knocked out of that game. But, you know, that is the defending ACC champs. They came off a big week one win. So that, that was a good win for Tennessee. Hey, if you want to just start, go ahead and count uh, your, your Jake Dickert as the shout out. You can, but do you have any others? Um, that, would, that would actually be the one I would go this week just because all that program has been through. I think that's fitting for us. I do want to ask you before we go. Um, we've seen a bunch of top six teams in the rankings, at least not look like they're fitting of being top 10 teams. Michigan has not played anybody that good so far in the first two weeks, but I do think it's interesting to go into here. JJ McCarthy was very sharp yesterday, 11 of 12. And the one incompletion was actually a drop ball, three touchdown passes. We know we can really run. Uh, he is now the guy that Jim Harbaugh said will start next week against UConn. Um, and I would ask you this, um, if it's J.J. McCarthy and what he brings, do you feel like, like I know you were hesitant on them as a repeat possible team in the Big Ten. What do you think of them right now? Where, like how optimistic are you about this team? Well, I think that they, you know, I, I'm no longer just assuming that Ohio State takes it back. Um, you know, it's, it, it is, it's hard to get a true gauge they are playing one of the softest non-conference schedules I've ever seen. Colorado State, Hawaii, UConn. Uh, but, you know, it does seem like, I don't know, my sense was that Jim Harbaugh has wanted J.J. McCarthy to be the starter for a long time and just waiting for the the, the moment to make that switch because Cade McNamara led them to the playoff last year. So he did this thing where they each start a game. J.J. McCarthy looked great, so you give him the job now. And I think the, the the notion is he he's because he's more of a um, because he's a good thrower but also a good runner that he can make that offense even more dynamic. But uh, but I also just think that you know I watched I didn't watch the Hawaii game I watched the Colorado State game and they still got a lot of dudes on defense and so that's the main takeaway is that I mean look Ohio State uh, a close that close win over Notre Dame is a little more questionable now. That Notre Dame turned around and, and lost to Marshall. So I don't know. I don't know that Ohio State – I guess I would ask you, you know, you pick them to win the national championship. How certain are you that they're going to win the Big Ten? I'm fairly confident. Fairly. And I was a little higher on <laughs> Michigan than you, but, like, it's a big sigh. I'm fairly confident. Um, not quite as confident. But I'm, I, I still think the pieces will come together. Um, I, and this is not an Ohio State – you know, hesitation as much as it is, um, you know, I, I we're going to see a, our big noon crew is going to see a lot of Michigan in the next month after this week's trip to Nebraska. I think we have Michigan potentially like four weeks in a row or three of the next four weeks after that. So I feel like I'll have a much better read on them after that. I mean, Michigan's the number four team and, and I feel good about that. And then what I, uh, last night I looked at the, previous week's AP rankings. So like you said, three top 10 teams lost are going to drop out of that. And they're like, okay, who's going to move in? I would not want to be an AP voter right now. It's rough after those first four or five teams. I think that USC team we just talked about, who we both agree is, you know, really good on offense and not good on defense. is going to be ranked as high as sixth or seventh in this new poll. And I, it's just like, maybe they are, but if they are, I mean, I think that tells you that the landscape out there is not that great. And that's kind of been the theme of the first two weeks. You know, we're seeing a lot of upsets, a lot of near upsets, because I think that 
most of these teams this year are pretty flawed. And when that's the case, you get some exciting football. Hey, Steve, just one thing on the uh, Quinn Ewers thing. Uh, a source I texted with while we were doing the podcast said, thought it was more likely at least out two to three weeks. But that it sounds like there's the potential for him to be back possibly for the Oklahoma game, which is on October 8th. Well, that would be big. Uh, two to three weeks would be, um, you know, much more optimistic for Texas. And they do still have that tricky UTSA game this week, but obviously if he can be back for Oklahoma, I mean, that's clearly the game they care about most. So, well, fitting that I'm still here in this Austin hotel room that we, that we talked about Texas, at the beginning, the middle and the end of this show. Um, We'll be back on Wednesday when that's when we answer your email. So as always, send your questions to the audiblepod at gmail.com. By the way, Bruce, I met outside the stadium. I met one of our most frequent uh, audible emailers, Johnny Shea. He's a Texas season ticket holder. He, he uh, saw me, you know, introduced himself. I actually interviewed him for a story that's coming out soon. Um, great to see faces to the names. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Did he come up and find you, or did you guys set this up before you before you got? No, no, no. I was actually because so I've been I was doing both the day before and the morning of doing some man on the street interviews about Texas, and I was interviewing some fans, and I did kind of notice out of the corner of my eye there was a group of four people just kind of watching me. And when I got done, he was like, "Hey, can I get your can I get my picture with you? I'm Johnny Shea." I was like, "You're Johnny Shea. I know who you are." So, and then I ended up talking to him for a while. Um, so that was very cool. And I think you said you ran into a listener. I did. I ran into somebody who, who was uh, on the academic side at UT on Friday at our hotel. And um, I thought that was, you know, it was, it was great to, you know, it's not, it's great not just to see people who listen to the show, but also to have like some exchange on what they like about it. Um, and some of the things that, you know, I think we need to be mindful, mindful of like, you know, it's, it's good reinforcement. And so I know from, it always used to amaze me when I, as a sideline person being at stadiums, how many people would come up and talk about the podcast and not that I, we don't think anybody's listening, but it's just like when you, when you just, you know, see the audience and it's, it's, it's really neat. So especially obviously Johnny's one of the like dozen, you know, dozen or two dozen you know, who are, who've gotten a lot of questions into us, you know, through the mailbag because they're yeah, really it, smart questions. It speaks to the connection. I mean, that's the cool thing about podcasts. You make a connection with the listeners. You, you might not as a writer. I actually met um, Brian Curtis from the ringer for the first time in the press box. He's a Texas guy. And I listened to, I've listened to the press box podcast. He does uh, quite a bit. And it's very surreal when you're talking to somebody in person for the first time, whose voice you have heard many, many times. So, <laughs> It's, uh, you know, it was taking me, I kept like kind of having to catch myself. Like, I feel like I'm listening to the podcast in person. So, all right. Yes. Send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com and we'll see you next time.